0: Welcome again, everyone, and welcome again, everyone online. Uh, last year, I had the excitement uh, the, of celebrating 25 years of marriage. Made it through, made it through, made it through 25, it's been good years. I still got my ring, and um, I st- well, obviously I still got my wife, or, I wouldn't be, or we would not be done. Now, I wish I could tell you, after 25 years, the three magic secrets to making a marriage work or five if I knew them of course I would package them in a book and I would go on a speaking tour and I get one of those funky little mics that goes like this and uh, I don't have great secrets Um, I have a lot of years of doing a lot of work and making sacrifices getting lots of adventures Uh, every day is kind of an adventure in my house when you have five kids uh, last year I got to celebrate the anniversary. I don't know I told you all this story. It was kind of fun and kind of, kind of adventuresome. Christy and I were gonna go down to Bisbee uh, for our anniversary. We got before we got to Benson, the tire blew out in the van. So we had to spend, I don't know, three, four hours on the freeway trying to get uh replacement car and get it back. So we finally we switched our cars. Finally made it down to Bisbee. As we pulled into Bisbee, it was dark. Absolutely out all the power. So try to picture Bisbee with no lights, nobody on the streets, nothing going on. They had just turned the electricity on in the hotel, but apparently in Bisbee the electricity and the internet and the TV are all like one cable system. So I sat there in the room, all the restaurants are closed, so we said, well, we're hungry, where do we go? They're like, you can go back to Tombstone or go over to Douglas. I'm like, let's go to Douglas. I'll bet there'll be like a great Mexican steakhouse there, right? So we go to Douglas. You know what is not open on a Tuesday in Douglas? Any local restaurant. I think, I think all the family restaurants just close on Monday, Tuesday. So where did I end up on my 25th anniversary? Filiberto's in Douglas. I am so grateful my wife is not one of those like gold-digging materialists who's like, oh, If that's all the better you can do for an anniversary. I don't know. Maybe that's part of the secret. Don't be overly materialistic. Um, I don't know. But I do know. I do know that because I've spent a lot of time and a lot of years devoted to kids and family and responsibility, that there are probably things in life that I've missed out on. You know, I probably could have traveled more. I probably could have had that big backpacking, gotten my gigantic green backpack and a Euro rail pass and gone all over and met interesting people named Jacques and Gisela. But I didn't. I'd probably have more disposable income. I'd have a nicer mountain bike. I'd probably come home to a quiet house at night, and not have to have a debate about whether one should have pants on (laughs) before or after bed. But you know what? These are the things that come with the territory of being with one person. The sacrifices you make, you give up a lot of the experiences of flittering around, and you trade that for something, the joys of having one person, one place, and the experiences you get with them. It's a different kind of happiness. It's not the happiness that's just based on sort of a selfish accumulation of things for me, but it's more based on responsibility to others and the joy of seeing the effects of your service. It's what I call the joy of exclusivity. And I mean that in a good sense. There's a, there's a, that word can be a little bit of a, kind of a bad word these days, and I think there's good reason for that. I'm not talking about the kind of exclusivity of we're making a club and you can't join it. That's the bad kind. I'm talking about the kind where you simply choose to invest yourself in one person or one thing or, or one cause for a long term instead of trying to just sample little bits and pieces of lots of different things. Marriage is a good example of the good way. You're choosing to be with just one person forever. You're choosing to give up the options of others, whatever fun you might have by experiencing new people along the way. You're putting all your eggs in one basket, and you're hoping it's going to work. Now, I'm a big believer in this, because I've usually found that if you have too many irons and too many fires, you don't ever experience any of them with a whole lot of depth. Everything becomes very superficial. If you just go to a lot of places and you just hit the places on the map, you'll get to see some really cool places. And you'll get to find all the cool nightclubs that are on undergroundeuronightclub.de.eu or whatever app is used to find underground German nightclubs. Maybe there is no app, they're too cool. I don't know. But if you live in one place for a long time, you learn its history. You learn the lay of the land, you learn the people, you learn their quirks. You see things beyond just the art museum that the locals never go to. How many of you have been to the Tucson Museum of Art? How many of you have been to the Museum of Modern Art? I haven't been to that one. I've seen I know people who have been put exhibits there. If you try to dabble in lots of different things, you get lots of exciting first dates and all the little butterflies and the giddy encounters, but you don't know what it's like to have someone there for you in the middle of the night holding your hair when you're puking. I don't have that problem. That's why I get rid of all my hair. But I think the same thing is true for your faith. If you dabble in a lot of different things, you never get to experience the depth. You, you get a little bit of the surface of what it teaches, but you don't get the full experience that comes with years of discipline and study. In, in our modern world, we have a lot of that. We have a lot of the dabbling, right? Checking things out. You know, sample a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, but always keeping one foot out the door, just in case... Because it might go bad. Well, anything might go bad. You might end up stuck on the freeway on your way to Bisbee. But then you wouldn't have good sermon stories to tell. And honestly, in some ways, I think it's a lot easier to go flittering around. Because when the going gets tough, you just cut and run and 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 you don't ever have to ask yourself the hard question of is this not working because i'm not doing something right as soon as it doesn't work you blame the other person and move on you don't ever have to do that introspection that might require you to change you just keep going and the interesting thing is that as i go back and look into the new testament this is the way the religious world was Even back then, the Greeks and the Romans, they were polytheists. They had lots of gods, many, many gods. And in general, the Romans didn't care how many gods you had or which ones you worshipped as long as you paid your taxes and you did your required sacrifice to the local god when it was time. So they don't care if you worship Jesus, but when it comes day to give the sacrifice to Artemis you better make the sacrifice and the Romans wouldn't have cared they just kind of thought more gods the merrier. They literally made shells in their households and they called them the household gods and they would have idols and they'd line them all up. Bing, 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 bing. You'd have Zeus, you'd have Hera, you'd have Isis, you'd have Earth, you'd have Thor, I don't know, whatever. Just line them all up and each god had a different thing. That's kind of the way it worked. You know the gods didn't necessarily expect you to serve them constantly, but if you wanted something, you had to give them something in return. So if you got a problem with your SAT scores, you go to Athena, give her a little sacrifice, she might you know give you a couple points. If you got a problem with your electricity, you call Zeus, right? If you, you got, if you you get you, you need money issues, you go to Hera. You know, you, you you need problems with your love life, talk to Athena. They had one for everything. And so it seemed absolutely nonsensical to them that since each god helps you in a different way, why would you just stick with one? You're cutting yourself short. You're missing out on all the other options. I mean, what good does it do to be with Hera and have Hera grant you lots of power, but be have no love life? I mean, yes, Hera and Athena... And Aphrodite hate each other, but, you know, you could play one off the other. They did in the Iliad. Right? So this was how they thought. You had to have lots of gods, lots of different ones. They had sort of, maybe you could call them religious situationships. That's the phrase the kids use nowadays. Are, you t- are we together? Oh, I don't know. Are we a thing? I don't know. Maybe we are, but we're together. Are we exclusive? Well, maybe we're not exclusive. It's just a situationship, which usually means one person is stringing the other along to get something they want. But we kind we, we, we of keep our options open. We, maybe I'm not ready for commitment. And that was how the Romans viewed their religions. Right? You keep a few, You keep a few around, but why would you just stick with one? So Paul comes in. The Apostle Paul comes in. Here's this Jewish guy raised in a Greek city. He shows up at Athens and he starts preaching. And the philosophers of the town go, hmm, I wonder what this guy's talking about. Let's have him talk to the philosophers on Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And the Areopagus, uh, you can still go see it. Like I say, my computer broke, so I wasn't able to get the images up there. But the Areopagus is still there, and and they usually also held court there. So it was basically rich old guys, because women weren't allowed, slaves weren't allowed, and working people had to work. They didn't have time to sit around and talk philosophy all day. But they decided to bring Paul up there. So Paul goes up there, and they're like, all right, tell us about, give give us your spiel. We'll consider it. So they sit there on their hill looking out over Athens and they're considering it. And they had this very, they had a very detached view of religion. Very kind of ambiguous, very, we'll look at the different philosophies and see what they all say. And maybe we'll kind of compare them together. Well, you know. And uh, so Paul gets up there. And he speaks. And he, look, and he starts out with them with an interesting thing. He says, um, look, I've been walking around the city. And I noticed you got all these idols, and they did. They had statues on literally every street corner. And he says, But I found this one called To an Unknown God. And they actually dug it up in the 1800s. Uh, This this did exist. Kind of a squarish monument. There's no image on it, right? Because you don't know what it looks like. So it's just kind of a squarish one, sits about this high, to an unknown God. The the Greeks built it just in case they were missing out on one. And if the one they forgot got mad at them for being forgotten, this way they'd at least, they're hedging their bets, right? And Paul says, Look, I saw the unknown God. Let me tell you about the unknown God. And so they're sitting there listening. He says, Okay, Paul's like, Okay, this unknown God, this unknown God is the one who made the world. This unknown God made everything. This unknown God can't be formed by human hands. Okay, okay, they're listening. And then he he says, but this one unknown God will come again one day in judgment for the resurrection of the dead. Oh, oh. Now they weren't so sure about it. Now it was kind of like, eh. So there were three reactions. One was they scoffed. "Mm, Not sure what I like about this. One was, hmm, I'll take that under consideration. And that says there was a handful of people. Just a handful who joined. That's about it. So, it was not the world's most successful evangelism campaign. In the book of Acts, Peter goes into the temple, preaches, and 3,000 people are baptized. That guy's running revivals. Paul goes to Athens, speaks in a crowd, gets five but the difference was that, of course, in Jerusalem, the people believed in one God. They, believed, they just didn't know which, whether the Messiah had come or not. It was a whole different game in Athens. In Athens, they were like, who is this God who demands exclusivity? What kind of God is going to take care of all the different things? What kind of God is this? I'm not sure what I think about that. And what kind of God has consequences for behavior? Too much demands... How do I put that God on the shelf with the others? You're expecting me to put all my eggs in one basket? Hmm, forget it. I want to keep my religious situationships going. Keep my options open. One of the things I learned when I used to go downtown and I'd I'd get all these 20-somethings, 30-somethings from the city, they'd come into my paint nights find out I was a pastor. I was always kind of interesting. Where where did they come from? And I found out the things that were the most common criticisms I heard of uh, of Christianity had nothing to do with Jesus. It had nothing to do with what was in the Bible. Well, they usually had no clue what was in the Bible. It had to do with, one, the fear of losing individuality. That was huge. I remember this one young woman. She looked at me and she's like, when you get together, to say the same thing at the same time and i'm like well actually they don't a lot of my members just stand there and look at me so don't worry you don't have to say anything (laughs) but why is the same thing how do i know that your words are my words i mean who 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 gets to decide what words you speak Why, why 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 do you get to decide the words in my that i do i'm like Like I say, don't say it if you don't agree with it. Lots of people just sit there and think about it for a long time. But it it was somehow seen as conforming, right? We were trying to conform her, mold her, shape her. Ain't nobody shaping me, right? And, uh, you know, and on the one hand, I think there's a legitimate part. I've been in plenty of churches, right, where it's come as you are, leave as we want you to leave, There's a lot of churches where they'll say, come as you are, but cover up, you know. And I had a lot of tattoo artists who were still convinced that church is against tattoos. I'm like, if you've seen some of the people in my denomination, you would have no worry about that. But, okay, the second one was the worry about losing other options. What about other options for my own personal exploration of spirituality? And, and I never got into, like, trying to compare religions. I just talked about the one I was. But the scandal, the scandal was about joining. It was about committing. It was about belonging. It, and belonging can come with expectations, compromises, and changes. You can't do that if you want religion that means that you you, you give up nothing change nothing consider nothing sacrifice nothing contribute nothing belong to nothing well you're not going to get much out of anything and that was the problem that it wasn't that they hated Jesus it was the being a part of something that made them nervous and again there's plenty of places I'd be nervous of being a part of too You know, there's a church by me that bans kids from reading Harry Potter. It'll teach them witchcraft. And they're huge. They just made a big edition. And I'm like, really? I mean, you really think your kids are going to read Harry Potter and go, Satan, Satan, I sacrifice this goat to Satan. Teach me a Patronus spell so I too can take Voldemort. I mean, you really think that's going to happen? Really? I've met people who worship Satan. Trust me, they ain't doing Patronus spells. They're doing all sorts of things like this. But it's real. And I was kind of like, huh? Okay, so I get it. But this is a general thing in America right now. Clubs, organizations, nonprofits, everyone's having a hard time. You know, the, the nonprofits will tell you, you know, what we need are volunteers who will go for a three-day training session and commit to one to three days every week in perpetuity. And what do they get? People want to come in one day, take a selfie, and run. They don't want to commit to that because, well, I might miss out. Right? I want to keep options open. The scandal of the cross is that it demands of us the joy of the cross is that it demands of us because by investing ourselves in Jesus we grow through the years into a deeper joy and a deeper knowledge and a deeper set of truths and a deeper relationship and we grow into things that we start not even having good words to explain by investing ourselves We learn the value of giving and sacrificing for others and of how that can help us grow. By investing ourselves and following Jesus to the cross, we learn the joy of selflessness and giving. It's a different kind of joy, just like the joy of a long-term commitment, but in this case, it's a long-term commitment with a resurrection at the end. I don't think the best approach to communicating Jesus in this world is getting involved in trying to bash other religions. I'll bash Odin and Thor. But there's so few people who believe in Odin and Thor these days. They're mostly up in Scandinavia trying to burn wooden churches. And they're mostly neo-Nazis because Thor is strong. Jesus is weak. All right. Get away from me. But I don't think the goal is to bash other beliefs. All I try to do is just talk of how great it is to know and follow Jesus. All the gains you get, the beauty of living in Christ, the joy of that. It's not to prove or disprove Jesus, but to live for Jesus. And to show that that can bring a joy in life that can't be found in just a buffet of superficial choices, but in following that one God. Amen.